Welcome back to Pod Rocket. I'm Emily, producer for Pod Rocket, and we're back with the Launchpad, our monthly panel episode, where we cover a wide range of topics trending in the world of web dev, as well as going through some of our guest hot takes at the very end and what they're fired up about right now. But before we get into our topics, I just want to welcome our panel. First, we have Eve Porcello, co-founder of Moon Highway, software engineer, educator, and author focusing on JavaScript, React, GraphQL, and Rust. Welcome back to the podcast, Eve. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Next, we have Michael Chan also returning. He's a speaker, YouTuber, creator of the Lunch Dev Discord server, host of the React podcast, and more. Welcome back to the panel, Michael. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. Of course. And to round out the panel of guests, we have Theo Brown coming on for the first time, founder and CEO of Ping.gg, educator, creator, and speaker. And welcome to the show, Theo. Great to be here. Awesome. And finally, we have our Pod Rocket host, Paul. Welcome back as always, Paul. Hi, Emily. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> All right. So let's get into our topics. Topic number one. It is a happy 20th to Node. Node 20 just released last week at the time of our recording. And we can't have a panel podcast without discussing some of the new features and speculating about the future of Node. So to get into it, what are your overall takeaways from the initial release now that it's been out for, I believe, almost actually a week? I, uh, it's an interesting release. It's a, a lot of things that have been moving for a while that finally happened and a lot of things that are just starting to move. I would argue the big two things that people will feel are the ability to build binaries, which is you can now point node at a JavaScript file and it spits out an executable rather than JavaScript files that you can run, which makes it easier to bundle a node app. The results are giant binaries that are like 80 plus megabytes. So I'm not sure if it's for everybody, but it is a thing that exists and could be useful. The other interesting pieces are fetch is now baked into node, which is really nice and overdue. The fact that we've been bike shedding over where our fetch should come from for the last 15 years is obnoxious. And it's nice that that's finally over. And we're finally using the web crypto standard for crypto. So you don't have to have 15 different versions of encryption, depending on where you're deploying your apps. But these feel more like bug fixes and things that people have built third party stuff for already. Nothing like groundbreaking in this release. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. It's uh, it's really interesting, I think, to see like how the like a node is like a boring project now, and I don't mean that in like a bad way. I think in a lot of ways, like boring is good. Like it's like very stable and whatnot. But it feels like it's like just slowly catching up to where people are trying to use it. And I think we've seen a lot of movement in other runtimes like Adino and a lot of JavaScript developers are defecting to Rust. So there's just a lot of other things happening. This is stuff that we you know, want, especially having a stable test runner. That's really cool. But again, it feels like it's playing catch up. So honestly, the most entertaining thing I think from this release was just seeing everyone tackle West Boss online after showing the binaries, <laughs> like the 85 megabyte binaries. <laughs> Why are those binaries so big, Michael? Could you enlighten a little bit about why they're so fat? I think they just have to include the whole V8 runtime is the problem. Yeah, and I know a lot of people are like, well, can't you tree shake some of the functions out? But I think it's written in C++ most of it, so you can't really tree shake C++ out of it. I don't know. I'm naive on that front, but that's my understanding. 
I'm nerdy about this stuff. I've built a few too many Electron apps. There's just a lot of stuff you need to make JavaScript work on any, much less many platforms. And that base binary, if you're not relying on system-baked stuff, is going to be huge. We went through this on React Native some amount of like, where do we get our JavaScript runtime from? Where if you use the one baked into the platform, you can ship React Native apps that are like less than 10 megs. But if you bake your own in, like then you're going to hit the 50 meg line quickly. And that battle of like, the thing that runs your JavaScript and can manage all the native dependencies and all that stuff is probably a lot bigger than your JavaScript files. Part of the new update that's coming out is an update to the V8 engine though. And when I was going on Twitter and searching around, it also didn't seem like it was something groundbreaking per se. It was just like a needed update. Or Theo, if you want to continue nerding out, I'd love to hear a little bit about why the V8 engine is not a significant upgrade in the Node20 release. Because to me, that's like a very core building block. Well, you mean that WebAssembly tail calls aren't a groundbreaking new feature that's going to change how we build on the web? <laughs> I mean, that's the running thesis, right? That's what we want to believe. Yeah, it's just V8 is also one of those keep up with the spec projects now where there's this complex but also kind of boring relationship between the web standards, the Chrome team, the V8 engine, the other engines, WebKit and all these things. And it's a matter of like a feature gets proposed, it gets a certain prior amount of steps through the process. The Chrome team decides how eager are they to adopt this thing then they go do or don't adopt it. And then the rest of the world does or doesn't follow. And there's a lot of features that get stuck in limbo. There's a lot of like, I think recently Firefox finally added backwards lookups to their regex. So you could write a regex that works in Chrome and Firefox that is complex for the first time. So we're just in standards hell. And I love that the V8 team is working as hard as they are to stay on top of the standards, but that's most of what I see out of the team now. It's not groundbreaking innovations to make performance way better. It's keeping up with the standards and adding features as they are added. When was the last groundbreaking V8 update that happened in anybody's recent memory here? I like how the crickets speak volumes. I don't know if I've ever been excited about a V8 update, but... <laughs> <laughs> you haven't been super weird. Okay. <laughs> I know that 2018 had a decent overhaul. I forgot what it was. It was something about the like compiler pipeline. I'm trying to find more about it right now and I'm struggling, but I'll be honest, I'm mostly excited about these updates when big JavaScript features are being added, like optional chaining type stuff. But mm -hmm, now that mm -hmm. TypeScript is so eager to adopt those things as part of their compile chain before they're officially part of the standard, I find I just wait for TypeScript to add the feature and I'm more excited for that nowadays. It's just funny how the word boring is kicked around with Node all the time because I remember the old days where Node was too dangerous to use because it was <laughs> like so new and how do we trust it and PayPal is going to use it so we better all get on board now and it's the most exciting thing. So to the point of what you said, the permission model piece is very like enterprisey because it's like how do we keep our file system safe? How do we keep our applications more secure? And it feels very, Node is, we're just trusting it now and we have to move at the pace of every stakeholder involved. So that's why it feels a little less exciting, but it is cool that it is a thing we can rely on. I want to go back to something that Theo mentioned, how there are obviously like a lot of tools and things that already exist that Node is catching up to. A lot of people were saying that the permission model that just came out is very similar to Dino's. And I know Dino and Bun and all the JavaScript runtimes are getting a lot of attention and popularity. Do you think that Node in this way is too far behind the curve? Do you think that things like Dino and Bun are going to take off and Node will be left behind? And in the broader 
aspect, like you were saying, Eve, like it's more boring now because it's more established. Do you think Node might be falling more in the way of like React to being like, it's a solid foundation for things, but it may or may not be more innovative in the coming months or years? That that hurt me deeply. Oh, God, we're going to talk about the React part of that comment a lot. <laughs> I also just want to go in on that because there has been no in more innovative framework, especially recently. It's weird that like the old dog invented a new style of trick recently. That's my bad. Just talking to all the devs that I do. They're just like, it's becoming like it's there. It's not whatever, but love to hear your thoughts. <laughs> I was actually sad to not see a React server component topic on this podcast because I think it's like one of the most interesting things to have in a web dev in a while, but super quick on the runtime stuff. Neither Dino nor Bun have had anything resembling real adoption. There's interest, but even Dino's interest has gone down so far that they've caved on their package manager and fully support all node packages four years after launching because they realized their way of doing things wasn't getting traction because adopting something that huge is hard. And I'm a huge Dino fan. I use it every year. I do the advent of code programming challenges. It's my favorite way to write a TypeScript file and just run it. It is an incredible system. I'm close with Jared from Bun. The things he's doing to performance on top of WebKit is incredible. It's nice to have a challenger for Node that isn't based on V8 because that just changes everything. But it's nowhere near ready for adoption. I don't see people adopting it. The way I see these permissions changes is it's just another one of those small things that somebody might say, well, I'm not going to use Node because X. And it's another one of those scratched off the list, which is nice to see. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it, like just scratching stuff off the list. Bun and Dino are really like the tip of the sword on this type of stuff. And these features like this are going to get experimented there and then trickle down into Node where it just becomes more stable and whatnot. So what are we looking for? I know Node 21 will probably come out in, was it August or September? But those are never the big releases. What are you hoping for within the next year or so? What do you want to see Node continue to evolve in? Do you see it just adopting these other things and making them better? I just want node 20 on Lambda so I can use the shared crypto module. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I, I, the thing I'm most excited about for node 22 is that node 20 will finally be on AWS. It's like the people who wait for iPhone 14 to come out so they can buy the 13. Mm -hmm. Slight, slight discount. Yeah, he was <laughs> waiting. Okay. <laughs> I mean, honestly, having fetch in there is great. And I think that that's one of the things that'll be really nice when it's on AWS. It'll be, it'll be awesome. I have a question, actually, in terms of the testing framework that came out. So I'm so into using Jest because I've done it my entire career. And it's weird to me to think about building up what seems to me a slightly boiled down test suite into this hygiene of developed over like the especially the past few years as I've tried to like actually test versus telling myself I will in the future. And do you feel like the testing module is going to grow into like what fetch is going to be is just like an inbuilt replacement that we're all going to move towards using or people like Jest and Mocha and these folks going to build on top of that and continue to have their ecosystems flourish as supplemental test runners. Personally and selfishly, I would love to continue using Jest and see it become empowered with additional user land, so to speak, like features. But I don't know if that's like a healthy direction to want the language to move in. So I saw a lot of the kind of like test evolution in the Ruby and Rails days, like, you know, a decade plus ago. And I think there's just kind of like these natural barriers in between like the testing frameworks. And so I think Ruby shipped with Minitest or something like that. And it was really great for testing certain libraries, like small libraries and that stuff, because you didn't have to install anything. And that's really one of the nicest benefits of having an inbuilt test runner. But it was never going to end up being some of the bigger 
testing frameworks. And I actually like that split. So if you're just making a small library, then you don't have to install all that stuff. It's really great for that. And I would, I think maybe prefer that it always be like a little bit more lean and small and like keep it fast and then install stuff when you need it. Separation of concerns for if you really need heavy <laughs> testing, right? Yeah. Well, I also like to say we just had the creator of the test runner come on. So if you want to check that out, that episode is live. Is it okay if we like parlay into React real quick? I wanted to hear your rant about React not being innovative anymore, Theo. Yeah, this one breaks my heart because React has now brought us like three different eras of innovation. The first one was components. We had component models before React, but we didn't adopt them before, just fundamentally. React showed up and said, hey, that MVC thing you're doing in the browser, that's a mistake. You don't need that. You can just put your template and your update layer and everything in a component and then compose those, and it will be fine. Don't worry so much. And it took us years to accept that, but then we did. And then they said, oh, that chaotic state that you're doing in those class components with all the weird internal like this bindings that aren't really isolatable and certainly not able to be yoinked out and reused, that's not a good pattern either. Functional components are great. Can we make those stateful? And in doing that, they found a way to abstract state similar to how components abstracted our UIs into these reusable chunks. Hooks abstracted our state into reusable pieces where we could work with the lifecycle of our data without having to directly attach it to the render layer. And then we can choose where and when we attach it to the render layer. Both of these things created huge waves of innovation, both like developers creating with React, but more importantly, library creators and third parties developing new integrations with React. Things like component libraries like Material UI, frameworks like Tailwind for our CSS, there are crazy data layers like Redux and React Query and all these other ways to work with React using these primitives. The primitives they gave us weren't good enough for everything we wanted to do, though. Specifically, we started server rendering. And as the team at Meta started to see more and more value in static rendering and server-side rendering of React applications, and Sebastian had the big vision of how we can bridge this gap, the third era of React started, which is the server component era. And their model for how to render things on server and then update and continue rendering on client. It doesn't have anything fully new, but neither did hooks and neither did class components. It's more a matter of they found this assembly of all these ideas that have existed from things as niche as Marco to things as like hype as Svelte and trying to find the balance of these technologies such that it still feels like React and feels like JavaScript, but makes us infrastructure engineers instead of front-end engineers. And the result is so powerful. And I've never had as much fun building applications for the web as I have with the new server component model. And anybody who doesn't think it's a revolution just hasn't built anything with it. Did React light that fire in your opinion, Theo? Absolutely. They were like the first ones to torch. Because I've worked with Astro, for example, for me as a developer, that was my first foray into like, look at the power you could have by shipping less and by figuring out how to leverage the server. And like, to me, I was like, wow, Astro, like, so you're saying like Astro distilled ideas from the meta team. No, so there are a lot of ideas that the React server component model learned from Astro, but Astro was the most bleeding edge of the last generation. React server components is the first of this new generation where the boundary isn't something that's hard defined by the framework. It's something you get to move around. In previous models like Astro, you would have a point in your application where you convert from Astro to React or Solid or whatever framework, and you choose, okay, from here down, I'm going to write this in Solid instead because I need it to update. In the new server component model, you choose where that boundary is whenever. You just change it. You go put a use client on a file, and now that's where that interaction boundary lives. And you can also pass server components as children or props to client components so that you can render things through the server inside of a client component. 
all of these patterns are things that like pieces of have existed in other stuff like Astro, but this combination where it all just feels like you're writing one framework, one syntax, and then choosing where the infrastructure boundaries live, that is fully new in React. Yeah, that's such a great way to put it too. Like the idea of like the previous generation of frameworks have decided that for you. Like Astro decides like, hey, everything is going to be a page at first and then you can put your client side code on top of it. But yeah, just being able to move that around and be like, okay, actually, I want all of this to be a server component. I want all of this to be a client component or I want this to be like a mix, but I want it to start here and have these client components. And it's crazy. Is there another place to play with it besides next 13 app directory or is that kind of the only place that has it right now? A bunch of developers have been making like third-party server component implementations. One of the funny things about the new model is it makes it much easier to build your own Next.js, which is why Vercel has chosen to throw out the vast majority of Next.js and rewrite it from scratch on top of the new model. Because (laughs) first off, most of Next was bad. I'll die on that hill gladly. Get server-side props is a mistake. And we're still paying back the tech debt that we've caused from it. But by throwing away the new model and embracing the new one, Next itself is conceptually simpler internally and as a consumer externally. And I've seen like Ben Holmes from the Astro team has a project, Simple RSC, where he from scratch built an RSC framework. And I know Maple Leaf from also the Astro team just rebuilt that using Dino, funny enough, just to see if they could. And turns out it's only like 200 lines of code to build your own server framework for server components in whatever runtime. That's cool. Yeah, if you haven't worked with Next 13 after Directory, it's a real treat. And I agree with you. I hated Next really up until 13 came out. I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I wanted it to be the whole time. And it was never this. And it's super fun now. So, I mean, it's still beta or whatever, but like it's a fun way to build sites. Eve, I know you like interface with a lot of students and people like stepping into the space for the first time because you do a lot of teaching like with Moon Highway. So like Theo said, we're becoming like infrastructure engineers, more like less front end engineers, which I totally resonate with. Like when I first learned Astro, it felt like a big learning experience for me. Do you think that this pushes that boundary about like the learning curve that you're seeing in students who are like, what is next 13? Now I feel like really confused. Do you see this as a problem or is it just settling the dust and it's going to figure itself out? Yeah, I think it's evolving. As Theo described all those different eras, there's different things that you had to know about React at those times. And yeah, as the scope got larger, so did the things you had to learn. And I think GraphQL kind of stepped in for that at that time, like React developers. I know people are cringing, uh, but it's true that people were having to learn backend things <laughs> um, to build like an API layer alongside their React application and where does Next fit in with all of that. Mm-hmm. So now it's starting to look like we're evolving toward um, having to know a little bit more deeply into the stack with React. And that's scary, but it's also these tools are going to continue to get better. I think learning resources are going to continue to get better. I think part of why people are resistant to it is that learning curve. It's like, I already learned this. I don't want to learn this. But as developers, unfortunately, that's what we signed up for. (laughs) Um, We have to keep learning and we have to keep choosing the tools that make the most sense. But I've definitely found that people are like, did I pick the wrong thing using this? Do I have to learn something totally new? And yeah, we're always going to have to learn something totally new. (laughs) We're not off the hook. For people who are maybe like stepping into the space for the first time, would you urge them to go try to have that initial exposure to like the client and server component model? Do you 
suggest doing that? Because that feels like a bigger complexity scope than like, let's create like a statically generated page. Yeah, I think with whenever you're setting out to learn anything, learning things incrementally is important. So learning React really well, the basics of React. Sometimes people get overwhelmed if they're like, you have to learn all these things at once. So I think that learning path is starting to be defined. I think a lot of the pushback on server components is like, are these a thing actually? Should I actually learn them? What is my responsibility here? Can I actually use this? Should I learn something that's going to change? So yeah, I don't think you should hesitate because I think these are sticking around as other folks have mentioned already. Yeah, one of the challenges I think is that it really does push it more into requiring a framework. So up to this point, like you could build React components anywhere, right? Like anywhere you had a browser, you could write a React component. And with these new primitives, it changes the thing where you like, you have to have a framework. And I think that it changes the type of application that you're building. Like I remember, again, I'm going to throw it back to Rails or whatever, but there was this big mindset shift that happened when people were building PHP apps and then migrated to using more Rails, which was this whole like application architecture. But the thing is, is that like out of the box, there were opinions on how to actually structure and build applications, not just pages or like small apps or like bring your own type of framework as you're building your application. And I think that hopefully we'll start to see a little bit more of that. The level at which we're building applications is a lot higher, like we're starting a lot higher, as opposed to like, this is a component and it natively renders on a client. And if you want to do more complex stuff, God be with you. We can actually do a lot of that stuff right out of the gate. But it does mean that there's going to be a lot more complexity as we teach people early on in their learning. My one big piece of pushback would be the amount that someone has to learn to be productive. I would argue that in the past, like they added JSX to React, that that's like now you need a compiler in order to use React. And that's more things that are React. So to know all of React, there are more things on that list. But I don't think checklist learning has ever helped anybody. You can't learn HTML. You can't learn CSS. You can't learn React. You can learn how to use them to build things. But I don't know React. I can't sit here and say what I 100% know and understand React. I know a lot of what it does. It's weird behaviors, how to use it. I can even educate people on it and onboard teams with it. But React isn't a thing you can learn in the sense that you can complete it. And I think a lot of people who are concerned about how learning React is changing, what they're seeing is all of the things that encompass React is now a larger set of things, which means to learn React, you have to know more things. I don't think that, that mindset ever made sense. And what's exciting to me about the new React model is if you learn by building and like project-focused based learning, the amount of problems you have to understand to solve a problem that you have. Like, I want to build a button that when I click it, it adds a user to the database. That type of problem would have been many more pieces you had to understand and many more steps you had to go through. You would have had to, as you brought up earlier, you probably would be learning GraphQL just to add like one button to your application because the one button you're adding today happens to be one that needs <laughs> a server. Now that's a three line of code thing with the new model. And that's the difference here is that, yes, there are more things that count as React, but there are less things you have to learn and think about on a given feature or thing that you're doing. The complexity of each individual task has gone down exponentially by the framework's complexity going up by like 10%. Mm. And we love to bike shit over that 10% of additional complexity on the framework, but nobody wants to talk about the 90% that we're killing in every single thing we're building. The apps I build with the new model are so much simpler to work with, so much more performant, and so much easier for teams that haven't even used React or TypeScript before to build in. It's just hard for me to look at this and say anything other than I'm excited for new developers to try. 
I think it's a really good good point too about how like React has always pushed that level of discomfort that people have. The virtual DOM, like at the time that it was released, everyone wanted to bike shed about exactly how it did its thing and if you could do it better by handwriting your code. And like it just kind of shifted that boundary of things that you had to care about. And like continue to shift that boundary of things that you have to care about. And I totally agree with you, Fia. Like this is an uncomfortable boundary right now, but three years in the future, it's going to be like, oh, duh. Yeah, like, of course, it's like the same they removed a class of thing that I had to think about. And that's awesome. I'm glad that I don't have to think about that anymore. So on to our next topic. We've been increasing our coverage on AI, obviously, because that's what everyone is talking about now. We've touched about it in our other panel episodes, but we often focus on the fear that developers have that AI will replace them. I know when we were having our UX UI panel conversation, a lot of developers send in questions being like, are these tools going to make me obsolete? And Adam Argyle was like, absolutely not. And so I kind of wanted to like focus in on that and talk about how you are all looking at AI as hopefully a way of adopting it to make your lives better. We just had on the creator of this little baby app, uh, Codeverter, Guillermo Rauch tweeted out about recently and how it will hopefully be the first step in using AI for code migrations. But I also know that like last year when we were talking about Web3 and crypto and everything, everyone's very excited and it seemed like it was a bit of a fad. So I want to have a more holistic discussion of where do we see AI being beneficial to developers? Do we think that right now it's more fatty than a beginning of the AI renaissance? Maybe start off like, are you guys using AI in development right now? How do you feel about it? Copilot's cool. Yeah. I tried ChatGPT. If I have a some code using an old library and I'm too lazy to port it, I'll just throw it in ChatGPT be like, hey, make this use this library instead. And it gets it wrong most of the time, but sometimes helps a little bit with some of the syntax. And I don't know. I like AI as a, a thing to augment my own workflows just to have something else to talk to or something else to type for me sometimes. But it's also, for me, created some of the most obnoxious bugs to solve I've ever had. And I know Primogen's talked a bunch about this after using Copilot at work. It writes code with such confidence that you just trust it. And then when it does something stupid, you don't notice because the amount of processing your brain had to do to get that code out is so much lower. The amount of understanding you have of that code is also usually fundamentally lower. And people always complain about how buggy software is. I know I've gotten crap for some of my takes. It's like, oh, this is why software always crashes. But if you think software is buggy now, wait till two years into the AI era. <laughs> Human-made code will be a, a highly valued asset. And the people who learn how to use these tools to make themselves more effective and faster, those are going to be the real winners. The individuals who can move faster with the tools, not the creators of the tools and not the companies that are buying these things to replace humans. The people who use the tools to make themselves the best will always be the winners in situations like this. I feel like you really need to have a knowledge of AI, especially at this time, to really juice the fruit for all the juice it's got. If you just hop into ChatGPT and naively have it programmed for you, as we all know, it doesn't do that good of a job. It's interesting to me that there's going to be a subsect of developers that because they're nichely focused on artificial intelligence, on like calculus back propagation, they've like made these models before. They have some acumen about how to get ahead of the rest of the curve, even if they're not like a React developer. It's like, well, if I could code an AI to embed all of my React files and all the documentation and have it output giant responses that puts me ahead of the curve. So I think that's going to be an interesting dynamic that I'm looking forward to exploring. It makes me want to study AI, right? Like, how does it actually work? 
I think that the command you have to have over language in order to really utilize some of these tools is really high. And so I think there's this idea of like, oh, well, as soon as I can tell this app that I want to make and it'll make it, there's this idea that that is what's going to replace us. But I think kind of in the same way that React removes classes of problems that we haven't wanted to deal with, I think that AI right now is actually pretty good at being that rubber duck for a lot of people. Like when you're beating your head against the wall, like, oh my gosh, I'm at this problem. Like I really don't understand it. Part of the value is just being able to put that in words again. And I think that that's a huge human skill that we have undervalued as programmers for a really long time. And so to have this tool that's forcing you to be able to talk about your code intelligibly, the right terminology and everything, which I'm usually very bad at. So I feel like it's improved my ability to talk about code, which is a huge value to me. That's the AI revolution here. It's just teaching us how to speak properly so we can communicate to each other. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, back to that point of like things that you don't want to do. Atomic Habits has this idea of building an automated streak thing. Like you don't want to have to like log your streaks manually. And so building some like automation that's like, hey, every time I do this thing, just log it and being able to see that. It's very motivating to see that. And I've been wanting to do one for like YouTube for a really long time to motivate myself to actually like post. And it's code that I don't want to write. Right. I just wish that there was like a streak for like YouTube, like NPM thing. And honestly, ChatGPT was about as close as I could find. And I just said like, hey, I want this Astro page that just makes a streak for me and like tells me if I posted for that week or not. And it did it like really fast. And then you're like, hey, use Tailwind since I have Tailwind installed and do this or like change that function name or like flip the order of this thing. And it's really fun to think about code that you don't want to write from that angle, that high level view. And then dive into the higher level stuff of like, I don't really like the way that this works. Then you can take on from there. But first drafts suck. They always suck. And so like ChatGPT is a great way to like have a robot do a first draft for you and be like, oh my gosh, your code sucks. Let me fix it for you. Like it's a hack to like get yourself motivated to work. First drafts suck if you're not excited about the thing. But if you're excited about the thing you're going <laughs> to talk about or make or whatever, first drafts are really, really fun. And I think that's what you're touching on here that's really powerful is... AI will never be better than a motivated engineer, but AI will always be better than an unmotivated engineer, someone who doesn't want to work on the thing. So if you're excited about technology, excited about building, excited about learning and doing all these things, you're fine. If you were 50-50 about tech and you don't actually like enjoy the moments where you're writing code and solving hard problems, AI is going to be more of a threat to you. But the people who are excited about engineering, people who are listening to this podcast for fun like on their way to work because they just like technology, like learning about all these things, y'all are fine. Do you all use Copilot when you're coding at all? A little. Ish. I was so skeptical going in too. I did not think I'd be a Copilot person. I have two videos on it now where I was like, I did not think I'd like this and I love it. I compete in Advent of Code every year, which is a programming contest that goes from December 1st to 25th. I can usually break top 1,000. I used to be able to break top 100. People have gotten too smart nowadays and there's like 300,000 people doing it now. So it's tough. I was able to break top 300 multiple times last year just because of knowing how to prompt Copilot into writing the right thing, like Wild. naming your variable correctly so oh, it cool. auto-completes the right code. And if the code it auto-completes is wrong, going up a line, putting a comment saying what it does, going back down and seeing it auto-complete it correctly. Like, both got convinced of Copilot's abilities through Advent of Code, and also that prompt engineering is a real thing. Copilot's been funny as a teacher uh, because sometimes I'll give folks a 
lab activity to work on. And then because all of the materials are open sourced on GitHub already, <laughs> it'll just spit out like my CSS or just finish it really quickly. So I've been interested in that. That's making those little open-ended challenges <laughs> have the same answer in a lot of cases. <laughs> training data, yeah, training data coming right through to the other side. Exactly. It's cutting out the middleman on that. Like I've also used Copilot for quite a while now, and I've actually migrated to using chat GPT more. And it's just been a context thing, really, because I know Copilot does a bunch of magic under the hood to provide context and embed relevant things. But when you can take a library and copy and paste like 600 lines straight into a chat one year, be like, look at these interfaces, go use them. Does a really good job. Yeah, it's shocking if you give it the right context. So I'm really excited to see Copilot X come out where I can do that chat style interaction, and then I can give it specifics that I know I wanted to import and use. So context and memory is everything. And it's exciting to see those two vectors kind of scale up as we march along this timeline. I want to talk to the like the main idea that you started this with and the idea of like an optimistic versus a pessimistic view of AI. I feel like one of my favorite representations of the interplay of human and AI is Tony Stark and Jarvis. And they do such a beautiful job of showing the importance of both the human and the AI part of that. And they invent together, right? It requires that human part to be like, okay, try it from this angle, try it from this angle, that kind of like pen testing, like would this work, would that work, would the other thing work? And then the AI is really good at just like spinning up universes and coming back with a result really fast. And I really love that concept of it. And I think the more that we can think about that, the more that we will build AIs that work that way. Ultimately, humans aren't going to last forever. So why not have an AI that like outlives us? And I don't know, but whatever. We're all gone at some point. No species lives forever. That's the optimistic take. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And thank God, right? <laughs> Might as well build something cool to live. Yeah. Everyone's fine. <laughs> Last question. Do we think this is more of a fad right now or do we think this is like the actual beginning? Because I know like every so often AI, just even in the broader culture, is like, oh, AI is going to like change everything. It's been happening for 20 years, right? Do we feel like this is an inflection point or do we still have a little bit of time? Yeah. I was going to ask, especially since I know you put out a lot of videos, especially recently, are you using it to generate content? Do you feel like it's fundamentally changed your workflow? I'll say this. I don't think it's changed a lot of my workflow yet. Again, like it's things that I'm not excited to do. I'll usually like throw up chat GPT for that. I think Theo made a great point about that. Like the idea that it's a thousand times better than someone who's unmotivated to do the job. So I think that's a really great place. Like, and I think that this is like a great place to learn anything is what's the thing that I don't want to do and how can I use technology to solve that problem for me? I don't think you have to learn AI, but queuing yourself up to like ask that question more regularly, like, is there a way that I could say I've solved this with technology? I think there's a lot of people doing some really cool stuff specifically with video. So like if you are able to do a video really easily, you enjoy making videos, you can just spin up a loom and like pass it to an AI. And that could be like the first draft of a blog post. Like there's a lot of tools that are doing that. There's things that like take your video and figure out what your chapter markers should be and like kickstart that part for you. Like there's some really cool stuff that's happening around stuff where you're like, I might prefer not to do that. Or maybe that's a blocker for me, but it's still important to me. And I want to include that. And the more that we can solve that with robots is great. And do you feel like we're at an inflection point where those alternate methods are becoming actually tangibly useful in the real world? 
Oh, for sure. I think they're just spinning up. I mean, every day we're seeing new AI services or LLM services, and I think we're just going to see more and more. And at some point, the ring will rise to the top, as they say. But like, we'll have some really good services that generate some really good results. My concern with this stuff is it feels like the tools I see are majority focusing on replacing humans and roles, not augmenting us to be better. I think in tech, we're better about this because like the developers building the tools know what development looks like. So they're not going to build an AI that replaces a developer. They're going to build AI that helps developers. But when it comes to things like customer support or creative work, the tools I find are less trying to augment, more trying to replace. I've yet to find a graphics tool that actually helps me in my graphics editors do things quicker using AI. Something as simple as like, I know uh, Adobe has their background remover that uses some AI internally, but it's one small feature. What I'm thinking more is like smart delete sections, smart clone, smart replace, like match the color and lighting profiles of these two images so they don't look like they were taken in different rooms. Things I spend my time hand doing in most of my editing work, AI augmenting, as we said before, with the dev stuff, a augmenting and automating the boring parts is very powerful. And I feel like we're, as an industry right now, too excited to replace things and not excited enough to augment them. And that's why I think right now we're in a hype phase because we don't know what the limits of the tech is. When I say hype, I don't mean like this stuff's going to burst and be useless. I mean more like the dot-com bubble burst where like, the dot-com bubble didn't happen because the internet was useless and misunderstood. It happened because the internet's value wasn't quite understood yet. I think AI is in a very similar place in that regard. We're going to fall back on a better place for it. But our current understanding of it is insanely inflated because we don't know what its limits are. Do we think that prompts are the way forward in all applications? Like you mentioned visual editors. Do you want something there where you can be like, hey, I actually want this whole background blue and I just want me to show up? I... I, I hate guessing on the interface for anything <laughs> this early. And I'll just be honest, I don't care what it looks like if it makes me better as a developer. To go back to server components, I had a proposal for server components that looks like two-thirds of how they look right now. And I'm not going to brag that I predicted server components. It's more I wrote something that would make my life easier, and they wrote something that makes my life even easier than what I proposed. I'm not as interested in what I could propose and guess it'll look like as I am in how I'll actually be benefited in the future. And for me, all of this is bike shedding. Like In three years, it either helps or it doesn't. All right. Before we get into our hot takes, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. This episode was brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket offers session replay, issue tracking, and product analytics to help you quickly surface and solve impactful issues affecting your user experience. With LogRocket, you can find and solve issues faster, improve conversion and adoption, and spend more time building a better product. You can get it at logrocket.com today if you want to get a free trial. All right, now we are on to our hot takes. Each of you are going to get a minute. You can uh, rant about whatever you want, as long as it's a part of the web dev world. Michael, do you want to go first? Sure. I think it's still way too damn hard to get a high quality video and audio for people whose profession is not getting high quality video and audio. I just wish it was easier. And I feel like everyone is capitalizing on the idea that it could be easier and you could still get high quality stuff. And it's just not there yet. It's still all garbage. So I can't wait for 
that to improve because I think it's still ridiculous that so many people are like, hey, what mirrorless or digital SLR camera can I plug into my cam link to get like a nice high quality video that's always going to be one frame behind my audio because inputs <laughs> come in at different rates. It's stupid. It's ridiculous. With that said, Theo, do you want to go next? <laughs> sure. Go ahead. I think our understanding of the term bleeding edge and what it means to like use new things is just fundamentally missing so much of the important parts of the conversation. Like the amount of times I get told on my YouTube videos and such that like, oh, that's cool. But let me know when you can build this for like a real company or a real application. Like we haven't been using these things at companies like Amazon and Twitch for years now. And like, I didn't learn the things I learned building at scale. And I'm bringing them here to talk about the new technologies, especially on the React side. The word bleeding edge is not a good word for those. Because when I hear bleeding edge, what I think of is something that has a high risk of not working out or not being a reliable bet in the future. Like I love Astro and I love SolidJS. I'm very close to the core teams for both. But you're making a fundamentally different and fundamentally riskier bet when you use something like that versus something like React. And that's always frustrated me that somebody looks at server components and look at Solid. They're like, yeah, this is the same level of risk. They're not. They're absolutely not. Eve, you ready? I'm ready. Go for it. All right, so my rant has to do with the sentence, no one uses blank anymore. No one uses Node anymore. Everyone uses Dino. Actually, no, like lots of people use Node. No one uses React anymore. Everyone's using Svelte now. Literally not true, but no one uses Netlify anymore. It's all Vercel. Not really. This logic doesn't hold up at all. So it makes me think about e-bikes. I bought an e-bike recently and it's very cool. It gets me places way faster than my regular bike. Does that mean that all of our regular pedal bikes should be melted down and not used anymore? No, they're super useful. So what I would say is that innovation is great. Choosing the best tools is awesome. Learning is the best part of our job, but we don't have to act so early. We don't have to declare death so early about things when they're widely used because it sometimes makes people feel sort of sad. So don't come to our computers and tell us that no one uses React anymore when you're using React on a website. Thank you very much. Great. Love it. All right, Paul. My hot take is up the same alley. We want to always be innovating and that's good. And off our topic of server components, like huge fan, like if you understand them, it really makes your website powerful and fast. I'm just always concerned about the barrier of entry for people getting to web development. And in some podcasts, we like talk about, oh, well, wouldn't it be great if like we still had frameworks where you could do just plain CSS and JavaScript and HTML. And yeah, I'm just always concerned about the level of dedication it takes to get into web development because we always want to be bringing bright minds into the space at all times. And just I look forward to seeing education continually come out like by from you, Eve, and other people, Michael, and your YouTube channel, Theo, as well. Hopefully, we can keep that barrier for entry low. My hot take was almost the exact opposite. I was between two, and mine was that I think that we think beginners are both dumber than they are and smarter than they are, where we think so much of what we learned before is a necessary part of the process. And if you don't learn these specific things, you won't be able to like be successful. And now there's more things you have to learn. But on the other side, we have all of this context already and we presume these things are necessary and that without them, you won't succeed. With something like server components, the amount make a button in the website that you can click and it works in a code sandbox is smaller than it's ever been. You might not understand the inner workings of all those pieces. And we love to think about those because we've been doing this for years and it's fun for us to talk about. But a new developer, the best thing to get a new dev hooked 
is writing something that they vaguely understand and seeing something come out that they vaguely wanted to build. And that has gotten simpler than it's ever been. I will happily die on the hill that we are in the best time it's ever been to start learning as a web dev. And I'm excited to see the learning materials continue to catch up. I think that's a great note to end on. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us today, Michael, Eve, Theo, and Paul. Uh, if you liked the podcast, definitely feel free to follow us on wherever you listen. Um, and we will see you on the next one. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is great. Bye.